everyone, I'm Caleb with Team Rockin' Cushions, and this is episode 12 of Rockin' Talk. The guest for today is Dr. Mark Vermoost. Mark is a research professor and founder of the Vermoost Lab at USC. In this Halloween special, Michelle Vanderwater sits down with Mark to talk all about the brain, diseases, aging, and more. Hope you enjoy! Like brain cells, freshness. <laughs> but um, it does look like there's been some head trauma. 
Right, right. You can see clearly that the back of the brain, the cerebellum, is kind of problems in the future. The cerebellum right here, meaning little brain. Um, it's the oh, I got some stuff on oh my finger. Um, it's the part of the brain that helps you um, train repetitive motions, you know, for example. So if you're learning how to play tennis or you're learning to play the piano, mm -hmm. all that muscle memory is being stored in, in that little part. In the little brain. The, That's so interesting. Yeah. Okay, so I thought tonight what we'll do is we'll play a little game because okay. it's Halloween. Yeah. And what I've done is um, I wrote some things, some, um, what am I trying to say? I wrote some brain parts down. Okay. And then I thought I, you could just talk about them as I pull them up. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. okay. No, that's, that's good. Yeah. You know, just so that we have a little bit yeah. of, like, obviously the brain is extremely complicated and right. we could just ramble on about all kinds of different things, but at least we're going to be specific with what, you know, what you can tell us. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So. <clears throat> I actually have a little petri dish here. Okay. Because I'm a scientist <laughs> right. tonight. Okay, so the um, the first part of the brain mm. I want to talk. Maybe I should shuffle them. Should I shuffle? No, no, no. Go ahead. Just uh, pick them. Oh, you've already saw the first one, so you're cheating. Okay. <laughs> okay. Have <laughs> to switch them over. All right. La 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 la. Okay. Um. Okay. Frontal lobe. Oh, frontal lobe. Yeah. Um. Do you want to know where that area is? Sure. Should I stick it in? I don't know, it might make you my experiments harder. Oh my god, okay, do it. In the future. Ah, ouch! Ow! Ow! Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually pretty firm still. Yeah. Oh god. Okay, yeah. frontal lobe. Okay, this is where the frontal lobe is. Yeah, so I guess um, yeah, in the future, the eyes of Rachel will be over here. Okay. And the so front this is the front of the brain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So the little brain is in the back, um, and the, the frontal lobe, if you will, is sort of this part of the brain over here, like right behind your forehead, if you will, sort of down to your temples, that whole uh, part over there. Um, and it's a really important part of your brain because uh, your frontal lobe is important for so many different things, particularly for the things that make you human. You know, uh, your personality is there. A lot of your personality is coded within your frontal lobe. Um, uh, different character traits like empathy and social inhibition are also uh, there. Oh, so when we get really drunk, what happens to our frontal lobe? Uh, that's a really good point. Yeah, drinking is one of the ways by which you can disturb the connections between cells in your frontal lobe. And that will remove social in, in inhibition and result in more risk-taking behavior, probably. Um, and in addition to that, um, the frontal lobe uh, is also really important for what people call executive functioning, which is really uh, the things we do when we're planning things out. If you're planning a vacation or you're doing your taxes or something like that, mm -hmm. you are calculating things, you're planning, I'm going to get to this particular goal, I'm going to go travel to... Uh, Let's say, for example, Spain or something like that. I have to take the plane to London first, and from London to Amsterdam, Amsterdam to Barcelona or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's all that type of planning, that sequencing of events is being done by a frontal... Okay, so people lobe. who aren't good planners, basically they have a very lowly developed frontal lobe. 
Oh, um, I'm not necessarily saying that, but it's certainly the better your frontal lobe works, uh, the better this planning will work. And it also is responsible for things related to it. So, for example, um, in addition to uh, planning out things, uh, planning out the sequence of things, um, it is important for multitasking. So, your ability to quickly switch from one task to a different uh, uh, mm -hmm. one. And then in addition to that, uh, you uh, help you monitor for mistakes, for example, uh, that type of thing. Uh, one interesting thing about the frontal lobe as well, that it is the first thing, or not the first thing, it's the, it's the last thing that develops as you develop. So um, your frontal lobe isn't fully functional yet uh, until you're about 25 years old. Oh, um, really? So that is why people think that kids and teenagers and whatnot are more risk-taking and whatnot because the frontal lobe, that region of your brain that is important for social inhibition and monitoring whether or not what you're doing is, you know, cautious or mm -hmm. not, is uh, just not functioning that well. That yet. makes a lot of sense because I'm pretty sure I was missing my frontal lobe when I was yeah. a teenager. Uh, the other thing is also that uh, the frontal lobe <laughs> is the first part to decay when you're older. Yeah. Oh, so, um, awesome. If you're if you're thinking about older folks, right? Um, the frontal, as a whole, your entire brain shrinks as you get older. Uh, it kind of uh, compresses in on itself, mm -hmm. and the frontal lobe is one part of the brain that shrinks the the fastest. Right? Okay. So how old do you think this brain is? Can you tell just by looking at it? Uh, I would say that this is probably from a pretty young individual. I would say. Um, Somewhere between, um, you know, 25 to 45 or something like that. Yeah. Mm, um, they're pretty young. Is this the, si I mean, what, do you, have, would this brain be like my size, do you think? Is this like a regular my size brain or your brain? I guess we have the same size heads. Uh, well, um, men's brains are always a little bit larger. The reason is that men are just larger, right? So uh, relatively every part, body part is a little bit larger. And that includes brains also. But you were saying, though, in our yeah. previous conversation, that bigger brains does not mean bigger brains. Oh, yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's more about the connectivity and the density, density of the brain right. than it is about, uh, about size. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, one, one thing I can say as well is that, um, you know, the, uh, I work on aging research, right? So I think about the brain a lot in aging terms and what happens when you grow older. And the frontal lobe is one of the regions that's really important in that sense because there are diseases that develop specifically there. And one of those diseases is uh, frontal lobe uh, dementia. Oh. Um, and, um, you know, w these people are, uh, that were to develop these symptoms, uh, they will mm, stop being able to plan well, for example. They often start making uh, sexually inappropriate comments about their wives, for example. They'll show no remorse about it later because the social inhibition is gone, right? Mm -hmm. um, and um, all these other features like narcissism, changes in behavior, um, uh, all of that comes about uh, not just with frontal, temp frontal lobe dementia, but also when people get a little bit older to certain degrees. Right. Yeah. Okay, let's do another one. Wow, this it's like I told I 
my thought was that the brain is so complicated. I just knew that you know, once if we don't be specific with what we're going to talk about, if you just ramble on and on. Okay, I will be rambling. Yeah, for sure. you'll be rambling. Yeah. That's yeah. what I meant. You'll be rambling. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> all right. You should pick the next one. Okay. Close um, your eyes. Oh. <laughs> no cheating. I'm not cheating. I swear. Okay. What okay. is it? I picked the occipital lobe. Occipital lobe. Um, so that's really the part of your brain that um, you use to process information that's visual. You know, everything that you see. Oh, so is this like the sexy part? You know, like <laughs> people, you know what I mean? Like, because people are visual when it comes to sex. So if they, res like, is this what's working when they respond to seeing, you know, a visually stimulating image? Um, I would say that um, that is not what your occipital lobe do, but that is what is being, what the visual information is being used for in other regions. Um, so the occipital lobe is um, in the back of your brain, weirdly enough, even though your eyes or these eyes will be in the front over here um, in the future. And then so um, the, the information comes through your eyes, all the light goes into your eyes, it gets sent to the back of your brain, and then it is torn up in all these little pieces. And it's being segmented uh, into the, this particular lobe to um, process it in like easily digestible functional units. So for example, you have cells in your brain that tell you that there are borders. You know, there are borders over here between you and this box, for example, between mm -hmm. you and the brain. There are particular cells in your uh, occipital lobe that tell you what color this is. Uh, there are particular cells that tell you if this object is moving or if it is stationary. Um, there are um, cells that tell you exactly where it is. Um, so, and then later on, uh, all that information is being sent back to other regions to uh, form a more holistic picture of the world. So, um, um, really, the occipital lobe is just for processing of what you're seeing, but meaning, like true meaning, what it is, and whether it is sexy or not, right, mm -hmm. uh, that is being processed elsewhere. Okay, um, so maybe I can guess where that is being processed. Okay. Um, let me see. I am going to guess that it is being processed in the motor cortex. <laughs> am I right? Am I right, everyone? Um, that is almost right. You are one sort of layer away from it. Um, oh, so, um, the motor cortex is what you would use. I would say it's probably somewhere. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh my god. This is especially a body part. It's somewhere over over here. It's kind of at the back of the frontal lobe. So if the frontal lobe goes from here to over here, the motor cortex will be somewhere around there, and it strips down all the way down to the brain next time, and also on the other side. Um, and the motor cortex is you know it's really easy to understand because it's what you use to do things like with. your coordination and stuff. Yes, exactly. So there's this whole strip of tissue. There are particular regions that control your leg, that control your thumb, that control your elbow, and control muscles over here. And actually, it, it, it beautifully uh, traces from your fingers all the way over here, and then to the other side of your arm, and then like back again. And that goes from this side of the brain all the way to the back over here. And weirdly enough, um, your brain has two halves, right? Two different halves. Uh, this is the left hemisphere, this is the right hemisphere. For some reason, the left hemisphere controls the right side of your yeah, that's uh, so body, weird. And the right side of your uh, body is controlled by the left side of your brain. Um, 
Um, and, and that has uh, all kinds of weird implications uh, or potential problems we can talk about in the future, perhaps. Uh, but uh, when it's other little uh, flags that check in there. Uh, <laughs> I just want to, I just feel, I don't know, just looking at the flags in Rachel's brain, I just feel like I should apologize, Rachel. I am so sorry that you ended up on Rock and Talk tonight. <laughs> I had no idea. Had I known, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what I would have done. But thank you for being here. Um, I, really, I really appreciate you donating yourself to science. So yeah. just on that note, how many people do donate themselves to science? Like. Uh, I think it's not that many people. I, I feel even me, and I'm a, I'm a scientist myself. I hesitate to donate any part of my body. Why? Because like, well, you know what happens. Well, <laughs> the people start sticking flags into your into your brain. And, and, and your students, you were saying, they're they're not always you know the most um, what's we call it uh, proficient in experiments. Well, yeah, well things things happen. Things, things go, happen. Things get dropped. You know, little. Piece of brain splatter around the lab. You slip on it, you know. It's, uh, I mean, you'd be wasted, you know. Yeah. No, I mean seriously though. Um, <laughs> that people who donate their brains to science or any part of their body uh, are, to me, heroes because um, that's the way science moves forward, right? Um, and uh, you know, I have become an organ donor myself recently. It took me a long time to finally do it. But I, I have finally done it, but I'm still a little queasy about the whole thing. Yeah. You know? Been taken. How does someone be, How does someone become an organ donor? I mean, I know you on your driver's license you can tick that box like I will donate my corneas or whatever. Right. But um, do you just contact like the university and say, hey, I'm I'm about to die. I'd like to donate my body. Well, I think it mostly happens during uh, terminal illnesses, for example. You know, where um, you, uh, when are there recruiters? Are there people that go to hospitals? recruiting dying people for science? That's an interesting thought. I, I, I highly doubt that. That sounds really unethical. Uh, I think doctors might raise the possibility, you know, that um, if somebody is dying and they have some organs that are functioning really well, they might say, you know, there is a real need for, for example, transplants of the eye, transplants of kidneys, or other body parts. Uh, you know, would you want to consider donating your organs uh, for that for that purpose and then maybe there are some people who ask for their organs to be donated to science in general uh, but uh, I you know I, I would be really surprised if there are recruiters <laughs> there are funeral <laughs> recruiters now honestly there are funeral people who work at funeral homes go around to people who are dying and they actually sell them you know packages for their funerals oh, and one mm. of the packages i just saw this on tv the other day one of the packages that they sell is like a life celebration so basically they say what kind of funeral do you really want mm. and um, how about this life celebration and this life celebration is basically a week-long party where you know they have like they just pitch them like this crazy like week-long kind of like um, celebration of your life and it includes parties it includes like you know food and catering mm. and like slideshows and movies and all these kind of stuff of your life and they sell sell these packages to dying people in, in the hopes of like you know obviously I mean who knows what happens after they die but you know instead of approaching the families after the death they sell them to the people right. who are dying and the people who are dying maybe they're not in their right mind but they're like oh my god that sounds amazing i mean who wouldn't want a life a week long 
life celebration package of yourself? I don't know. It sounds different to me than just advertising in general because these people are obviously desperate. Uh, yeah. They are treating us their life slipping away. They know they're going to kick the bucket soon. <laughs> I, I, they're not thinking straight anymore. And I think that is taking advantage it of it. It is taking perhaps. advantage, yes. Um, so I, I find it different from you know, a normal ad in a newspaper or something like that. Yes, you're so. right. Okay. Don't do that, people. Do not sign up for the week long. <laughs> Even though a party does sound good, you know. I would love that. I want to do that before I die. I would, right. I would rather. Oh, but this is not before they die. They don't get to participate in the actual party. No, because these oh. people, they want to get paid up front. And then the families are probably going to be like, this is ridiculous. After the person's died, the families are probably going to be like, we're not going to go through with this. But there's um, probably a no refund clause. Wait a minute. I thought this was a party that you get before you're actually dead. Like a last... No, that would be awesome. I think we should do okay. that. All right. We should, we should start a business. <laughs> okay, let's do okay. that. All right. I'm going to pick the next one. Um, mini, 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 mo. <clears throat> uh, this is Rock and Talk Horror Show. Okay. Hippocampus. Oh, yeah, the hippocampus. That's a wonderful region, yeah. I don't know if you're going to have to put it in there. You're going to go into the brain, probably, kind of push it down in the hemisphere over here, in this groove over here. Um, <laughs> Why is it that? It's kind of hidden underneath the cortex, so you're going to have to really kind of shove yeah. it in there a little bit. Yeah, about Oh, there. my God. Oh, my God, it's so yeah. firm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like this? Yeah, something like that, yeah. All right. Um, Ooh. The hippocampus is... One of my favorite regions, guys, because it is where you make your memories, you know? And that is what I think what we really are, right? You are who you are because of the memories that you have. Mm -hmm. All of your joy is just encompassed in it, you know? And the reason why I'm happy often is because I am remembering things that I've done. Hopefully, I'll be happy in the future when I remember this show, right? Uh, <laughs> or, it's, you know, it's, it's how I form... Um, attachments to people, to my parents. Uh, I have attachment to my home country, Holland. I remember the streets there very fondly. You know, I remember all the different adventures that I've had, mm -hmm. all the different nights out, and um, and all those memories are partially formed by virtue of this little region in your brain called the hippocampus. Um, um, it, it and is this what when people start to lose their memory? Is this the part that's, that decays? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So people that have Alzheimer's disease, for example, or people who've had strokes or have had uh, like <laughs> damage to your brain. Uh, but wait, that's really important in the frontal lobe as well. If you think about people who play soccer or play American mm -hmm. football or something like that, their frontal lobe, where their personality is and where their empathy lies, all these types of things are actually damaged uh, when you play these types of sports. I highly recommend not doing that. Really? But, yeah. Wait, why are they damaged when you play sports? Uh, well, because you use your head to oh, I see. You head, head balls. Head or you, yeah, you bump into <laughs> other people. Oh, so we like football, for instance, uh, American, um, American football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like yeah. Uh, the, the trauma, the head trauma. Yeah. Um, Exactly. Kind of stuff, and yeah. you know, and, and, and because you, you, you need that part of your brain for the rest of your life, you know, like I said, to do everything that you want to do, to plan out your whole future and to uh, you know do things in an in a you know in an organized fashion. Um, it's uh, it's you know it is the lobe that really distinguishes us from most other mammals, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, the way that it is formed and the way that it 
develops uh, over time. So it's a it's very precious property. <laughs> but uh, so the campus is um, a special region for many different reasons. Uh, but one reason is that it has a stem cell compartment in it, and stem cells are uh, these special cells in your body. Yeah, I just want to talk about stem cells because okay. I know I've asked this before, but like. What is, what is so controversial about stem cell research? It's, do you do stem cell research? I work with stem cells, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Are, they from, are they from embryos? Are they from... Um, um, the cells that I work with are from embryos, yeah. Okay. And so what, what is the controversial part about that? Is it that, you know, well, they're, they're human embryos? Yeah, or? right. So, um, well, I, I understand, in a, to a certain degree, I understand the arguments, you know, um, there are um, these are cells that are special. You know, they're not like normal cells. Like if your skin sloughs off, you know, what's the big deal? Your your gut actually regenerates every three days. You know, you have completely new cells in your entire gut. Billions and billions of, of, of cells that are completely new uh, in three wow. days. But stem cells are different because they are permanent residents of your body. You have different types of stem cells. There are adult stem cells. These are the cells that we have. You and I have stem cells in almost every tissue. Our brain has stem cells in it. Our blood is made from stem cells. Uh, muscles have, have uh, stem cells. Our gut has stem cells, etc., cetera, uh, et cetera. And these cells are special because they can become other types of cells. So normally when a liver cell divides, you get another liver cell. When a gut cell divides, you get another gut cell. It's never the case that when a gut cell divides, the divides, suddenly there is a liver cell, you know? That mm -hmm. never happens. Or vice versa. A liver cell can never give rise to a neuron or a heart cell. It's mm -hmm. always another liver cell. And stem cells are special because they can do, do that. They, they can become not just another stem cell, they can also become a neuron or a heart cell or um, a um, intestine cell or a kidney cell, depending on where they are. Um, so from a stem cell, you can grow body parts, yeah. in theory. I yeah. mean, has that happened? I remember seeing a long time ago, there was an, a human ear grown in the back of the mouth. I know exactly what you say, yeah. And yeah. that just like blew up my mind. Yeah. And, and that's possible, yeah. It's like that was like yeah. a real thing. Right? So yeah, but so stem cells are powerful because um, they can because they can become other cell types, even cell types that cannot divide themselves. For example, if we're talking about brains, the most important cells in your brain are probably neurons, right? Neurons uh, talk to each other and they allow you to learn and 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 uh, develop skills like piano playing or chess playing or biking or whatever, uh, but neurons don't divide. So when one of them dies, it's just gone, right? Mm -hmm. um, so um, the reason why your brain is able to survive these types of injuries is because there are stem cells, and the stem cells can divide and generate new neurons. So that's what makes them special. And gives them the power to be um, to cure all these diseases, right? Mm. Alzheimer's disease, for example, is caused by the death of neurons. And how are you going to get those neurons back, right? 
The only way to do that, probably, is to activate stem cells, to, to probe them, to push them, to make more neurons and replenish all the cells that have been lost. Uh, now, there is less controversy about that, because that involves usually adult stem cells, which are a little bit less capable than embryonic stem uh, cells. Embryonic stem cells are exactly what it says they are. They are cells, stem cells, derived from embryos, and from human embryos in particular. But on the other hand, um, you know, this idea that this stem cell can now form a whole new baby <laughs> and uh, be alive on its own, I find that a little bit uh, far-fetched. Um, uh, the, these stem cells hold the key uh, to a lot of cures. And because of their extraordinary potential and their extraordinary capacity to cure people that are, you know, deathly ill, who have lost their everything that they are, if you imagine an Alzheimer's patient, right? These patients have lost their memory, they've lost their personality, they can't they can't recognize their kids anymore. The grief that, that causes to their family members and uh, to their friends and their loved ones, and the, 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 the burden it puts on the people who take care of them, the amount of money that it costs. Every year we spend probably $800 billion just treating these diseases or taking care of people who have these diseases. You know, because of these extraordinary circumstances, I think there should be an exception made for potential cures, even if it's possible to have either religious or ethical concerns uh, about it, because the same concerns should apply to the patients. Uh, yeah, but you know, I'm just going to bring it up because every, there is a theory that the reason a lot of diseases haven't been cured is because nobody would make as much money. Uh, <laughs> and that's true. I mean, well, if you think about all that you said, like billions yeah. of dollars are being spent every year mm -hmm. on people staying, uh, being sick, and staying sick. Yeah. So how much interest is there really in having well, a cure? I, I can tell you, I can give you one example, for example, cancer, right? Uh, I, I, when I hear these types of arguments, I, I often hear an example, there's a cure for cancer somewhere, and I just, wanna, just don't want to bring it out uh, because it, you don't make money out of curing cancer, you make money from treating cancer, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, uh, first of all, those arguments are usually brought by people who don't know uh, the details about science itself and how difficult it is to cure these diseases and how much effort people are spending every year, hundreds of billions of dollars every year in funding to try to cure these diseases. You know, me, thousands of labs around the world, this is our only goal, right? We're not designing treatments, we're trying to design cures. Um, and um, all of that going through very rigorous, um, uh, peer-reviewed uh, uh, processes, and um, uh, let me explain to you, for example, why there is no cancer cure right now, okay? Tell me. So, um, cancers are extraordinarily complex. Um, if I have a cancer and you have a cancer, let's say you have a breast cancer, I have a brain cancer, for example, uh, these are not the same diseases. Um, my brain cancer can only be, be cured by particular treatments and particular cures that will never work on your breast 
uh, cancer. So first of all, all different cancers, prostate cancer, breast cancer, brain cancer, whatever cancer, liver cancer, they're all different. Mm -hmm. um, and so you need different cures for all those things. Secondly, um, what is a problem with cancers, if, and the key feature of them, is their genome is really unstable. And that means that uh, if a cancer uh, grows to be a size where you would detect it, <coughs> like a couple of billion cells or something like that, with a couple of billion cells in a big blob somewhere in your gut or something like that, each one of the cells is different. Because when the cell, the cell divides and the genome is replicated during that process, uh, changes happen uh, because the genome is not stable. Normal cells, genome is very, very stable. When the cell divides, almost an exact copy is made of the genome. So when a cancer cell divides, lots of errors happen. And as a result, each cancer cell is different. So let's imagine that you find a cure or a, a really powerful treatment for my cancer in my gut, right? Um, you have this molecule that attaches to the cancer through a particular receptor or something like that, some other molecule that's only present on my cancer, and you, and you give it to me, I take the pill, 99% of my cancer has gone in days, However, this is where the problem happens. Because the genome of the cancer cells is so unstable, there will always be some cells, you know, out of these many billions that there are, maybe, you know, 0.1%, a few thousand cells that don't have that receptor through which your uh, cure works, you know? And those cells would be resistant to your treatment, and once you think, oh, I cured cancer, it's totally gone. No, no, no there are a couple of cells left that are resistant to it, and those are still cancerous. They'll, they will simply grow out again, and a year later, two years later, you have the exact same cancer left. You're thinking, oh, well, let's draw the pill on again. But now, all the cells that uh, are, have, have grown back are cells that are descendants from uh, th those resistant cells. Mm -hmm. So almost all of them will be resistant also. So your drug has no purpose anymore. It doesn't work anymore. So you need to find a new cure again, you know? And that is the key, you know, one of the keys anyways, uh, why it is so incredibly difficult to cure cancer. Mm. All cancers are, are different, and even in the cancer, there are so many cells that are completely unique. And how are you gonna kill a billion unique cells? That is the challenge. Uh, and, you know, uh, you, you will never hear these types of arguments from people who make the, who, tell you something like that, what, you're, what you just told me, because you know, they're simply not knowledgeable enough now about it. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe there are some that, that know something, but I can guarantee you that there are dedicated people working around the world, not just in the United States, in Europe, in South America, in Asia, and everybody, everybody's goal is simply to, to cure cancers, cure cardiovascular disease, cure diabetes. We're not interested in um, making money, just treatments, you know, mm -hmm. uh, we're interested fortune and fame, <laughs> it's what we want. Uh, and, and, I was saying. And, and that, and that is that is my goal, also. You know, my lab works to cure diseases. Um, and uh, you know, if 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 a hundred thousand people can do it with the money that they're getting and the experiments that they're doing every day, working 12 hour shifts, you know, you know, it's just not that easy. That's my opinion. Well, now I feel a little <laughs> stupid. <laughs>
should not. Whoever wrote in and asked that question, shame on you. Okay. <laughs> let's get back to let's get back to something easy, okay? Like this, uh, like Rachel here, who has come all the way from China. Thank you, Rachel. Now, why China? Because I feel like it's very dangerous to send things from China these days, especially uh, organs. You know, there's a, there's a, there's just bigger market. There's more people. Okay, yeah. is this a is this a COVID? There's a billion people that are okay. going to be one of them. Can I just ask? Is this a COVID brain? No, it's not. It's are not you right. sure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How yeah. can you be sure? I'm ninety nine percent sure. Um, you know, maybe I could do a test or two. You know, I will admit that. Okay. Uh, All right. Just, I just. But you know, COVID is spread through breathing on people. This is not breathing. I know, but it kills the whole. It kills the whole body, and obviously, like the brain gets infected. Yeah. Right. You can't like. Maybe. Yeah, I know. You know, function. Okay, let's just. Let's just okay. Pick one. Oh. Well, I can pick a sort of. You're cheating again. Oh, okay, no, I'm not. Close your eyes. Hang on. Let me just okay. do a little switcheroo here. Shuffle the cards a little bit. Okay. Okay. Oh, Wernicke's area. Oh yeah, this is kind of interesting. So, um, Wernicke's area is a really specialized area. It is part of the temporal lobe. There are four different lobes okay. in the brain. This is another lobe. Should we go move to something else? I just don't want to have to keep putting the same. Um, oh, oh, I see. The same ones in the same side. We yeah. need to like actually switch this around, maybe. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that why don't we turn it around? Yeah, we do. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully, we can pick one. Yeah. So <laughs> Let me put this one aside because okay. that one's yeah okay. Um. Well, I'm gonna. Uh, oh my god! I'm just gonna turn these around. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh! Oh! Okay. Maybe I'll pick this. <laughs> you just went through all of them. All right. What's that one? I have my favorites <laughs> of all what I'm seeing over here. Okay. Uh, blind side, guys. Blind side. I guess where should I even stick this though? Um. There's Isaac here right now. Um, I guess I'm gonna go somewhere over here. Um, asking this is where the precuneus is, which is supposedly where part of conscious consciousness might lie. Um, okay, I feel like that's an oxymoron, blind sight. Yeah, you would say so, right, wouldn't you? How can somebody be blind and have sight at the same time? It doesn't make sense at all. Um, and that's one of the most amazing things about your brain, guys. It's that. 99% of what happens in your brain happens in your subconscious. Um, and um, it, I was talking to my students the other day about this also. And I was talking about blind sight in the context of, um, I guess, um, processing visual information. Uh, you can be blind for many different reasons. Um, so you can be blind because your eyes are not working, right? Obviously, that would make you blind. Um, but uh, another reason why you might be blind is not because uh, your eyes are not working, but it's because your occipital lobe, the, the part of your brain that processes the information, is not working. So your eyes are working properly, they're giving visual information to your brain, but that part of the brain is not working, so you're blind after all. Uh, there are also um, other ways in which people uh, might be blind uh, for example, I told you earlier that your brain separates information into individual little tasks, right? Mm -hmm. like one thing might be to recognize borders. One thing might be to recognize speed or uh, color or something like that. 
there are more complicated ways in law. For example, there are people uh, who are blind, not necessarily blind, but they are blind in terms of faces or in terms of objects. And this is a really fascinating thing because... Um, is that so? Is that trauma related, do you think? You know how like people who have a lot of trauma in childhood or whatever, let's say they were sexually abused or whatever, they kind of like put up like a mental block? Um, I would say that that's part of the case. This is more uh, as a result of, for example, strokes, where you get a really big hammer to your head or something uh, oh, like that. Yeah. And that particular region uh, is damaged. So the weird thing is, is that uh, what you may not think of, but was actually in hindsight kind of logical, uh, is uh, that there are, just like there are cells that allow you to see borders, there are cells that allow you to recognize and process faces. Uh, so for example, there are patients um, that cannot recognize or cannot process faces. If I point, if you are the patient, for example, mm -hmm. okay, and I point to the curtains or to the camera or to the brain in front of these flags, you will say, that's a curtain, that's a light, that's a camera, that's a brain, these are, these are flags. And then I ask you, what is, what is this? Like, well, I, you know, it's probably a face, you know, but who it is, I don't know. Um, even if you were to look in the mirror and you see your own face, which you've seen a million times, right? You wouldn't recognize it as your own, as your own face. You, you, what is that? Is that, maybe that's an eyebrow, maybe, uh, you know, it's probably like a nose, but they, they can't make sense of faces. That's so weird. It is super weird. And is, it becomes even weirder in the fact that there are opposite people as well that can recognize faces normally. Uh, if you're a patient again, where you can recognize your mom, you can recognize me, uh, you can recognize uh, your friends, your neighbors and whatnot. And then you look at this brain. You're like, what is this? You know? And it's so severe that even if they were to look up at the sky, which we take for granted, everything knows what the sky is, it's up there and it's blue, right? Or cloudy, whatever. Mm -hmm. so like, okay, I know it's up there, and from experience what I've been told, big things that are blue above me is the sky. But they won't know for sure that that's uh, actually it. They won't know that this is a kitchen. They won't know that this is a lamp, that this is a bottle, you know? But if you show them a face, they know exactly who, who it is. So this separates this, these people, these patients, allow you to understand how the brain actually works, right? Because it sort of dissects all the little chores that your brain actually uh, does. And then once, what I'm, what I'm getting at this blindside thing, guys, what I'm getting at ultimately is that you can uh, also be, uh, once that information, about the borders and the colors and what things are, all that has been given meaning, right? Mm -hmm. um, then it has to be sent to your conscious mind. Um, and that is the final step really in the whole process of, for example, seeing things, right? And even that, even if everything else works, you know, your eyes work, your occipital lobe works, you know, you can put meaning, you can give meaning to the things that you see, still you can be blind because that information is not sent to your consciousness center. So you're not conscious of what you're actually seeing. However, if you were that patient and I was sitting over here and you see nothing, you see darkness, right? This blackness. Mm -hmm. And I shine a light in your eyes and I move it back and forth and I ask you, is the light moving from left to right or right to left? You'll answer me you know, 80 to 90% correctly because your subconscious mind 
still knows it, right? It's just that final step that bringing it to your conscious mind, uh, that is not working. Uh, and that is an amazing thing. Um, and it, it actually can be even weirder. Let me tell you about one other issue, okay? Okay. Um, uh, I told you earlier that, you know, when you see things, uh, you need to give meaning to it, right? And you need to focus on it. Um, and that focus is given by your parietal lobe. We haven't talked about that yet. Let's give a lobe uh, in your... Just another your lobe, lobe in there. Another lobe. Uh, and um, uh, this parietal lobe uh, gets the information together and you know puts it together in a holistic view of what the world is, what you're seeing, what you're experiencing. You know, putting taste and uh, smell and sight, everything together into one objective view of the world as a whole, but if the parallel log, for example, the right half doesn't work, there's two halves, right? On the left hemisphere, right hemisphere, there's two parietal lobes. If your right parietal lobe is damaged somehow, you will ignore everything in the left side of your view. So these people, when they're, for example, shaving or they're eating, let's say they're eating from a plate, they're eating with brain or something like that, right? They will only really see the the right half of it. They'll eat the entire right half and say, it's done. There's no more brain left. And then you're like, oh well, what if I turn it around? Like, oh wait, there is more brain left. And then they'll eat the right half of that. And then that, it's, it's done. It's so over. it's kind of, no. so they're blind, like literally blind on one side of their body. Yes, exactly. Well, not, it's not really blind, because if you then focus them on it, for example, if you ask them to draw this brain, they'll draw half of it. You know, and exactly in the middle, they'll stop drawing, and there'll be nothing on the other side. And then you ask them, well, why did you draw this side over here? Like, oh, yeah, right. I, why, I don't know why I didn't see that. You know? um, and it's an amazing problem. You know? uh, again, revealing this magical working inside your brain that you, you wouldn't think that it would be there, but if you think about it, it's actually quite logical. You know, that you know, there must be some part of your brain that helps you focus on things, right? And mm -hmm. that happens to be this parietal lobe. It's like the silent helper. The silent helper, yeah. I guess I guess it kind of it's like backup. Yeah. The subconscious is like backup. But it also helps you to understand that really ninety nine percent of everything that you do, everything you think, everything that's happening in your brain occurs in your subconscious, right? And then you know, you only know of the final step that happens, you know, that when it gets put back into your consciousness. Right. Um, yeah. So interesting. Oh my gosh, we could talk all night about this. Um, <clears throat> but uh, <laughs> how are you feeling? You've been doing all the talking, that's why I'm asking. Are you okay? Do you want a drink? Or? I'm getting a little bit hungry, that's for sure. You're getting hungry? A little thirsty, yeah. Okay, we can, yeah. uh, should we do one more? Okay, yeah, go ahead. Okay, I'm going to choose one. We're going to do one more, everyone. Um, I'm going to see if I can find anything challenging here, because somebody seems to know it all. Uh, let's see here. <laughs> uh, we, already talk, we actually already talked about Alzheimer's and the gut, so I'm going to... We talked about the, about the gut. Oh, you mentioned it. Did yeah. you want to talk about that one? Maybe, can, can I, would you mind if I say a little bit about it? No, okay. I just talked about it. Alright, okay. Okay, well there's no, obviously no place to put the gut over here. But guys, one of the most amazing things that we've learned in the last 10 years or something 
is that your gut has an enormous impact on how your brain functions. As it turns out, you know, uh, you might know that we're sort of like symbionts, right? There are hundreds of different uh, bacterial species living in your mm -hmm. gut. And in fact, if, if I were to take a little swab of your ears and behind your, you know, in your armpit or whatever, if I, and I were to look at how many creatures are living there, there'd be 10,000 different species of creatures living on your body. And many hundreds of them are living in your gut. And the amazing thing is that it now turns out that these creatures living in your gut have an enormous impact on how you think and how you feel. Um, so, uh, for example, um, one uh, way neurons talk to each other is through these uh, compounds called neurotransmitters. Um, and uh, one really important one of them is serotonin. You might have heard about that. That's really important for moods. Right, that makes you, it's the happy, happy um, quotient in your brain. Exactly. And lots of people who are depressed or whatever have some deficiency in serotonin, and there are drugs to remedy that, basically. As it turns out, 90% of the serotonin that your body has or makes is made in your, in your gut. Really? And a lot of that is made by the bacteria living in your gut. So actually, <laughs> your gut is an enormous reservoir uh, for the exact compound you need to feel happy. You know? uh, the same thing is true for other neurotransmitters. There's a neurotransmitter called GABA, which is made by different bacterial strains. Um, and when you, uh, when you lose the bacteria that make these compounds, you start to get depressed. And you can switch the happiness or anxiety of animals by doing fecal transplants. Now you put the bacteria that make the serotonin into an animal that is very anxious, for example, and it'll switch the entire mood of an animal. Um, so there's just this um, uh, amazing link between uh, your behavior and your and your. Okay, anger. so are you saying that we can? I mean, we all know that when we ch when we eat certain foods, our moods change. Yeah. But you're saying that if we eat, um, uh, are there specific foods for our, if we, if we focus on healing our gut, whether it's leaky gut syndrome or whatever, right, like we yeah. focus on healing that, that has more importance to, that has more effect on our moods than actually taking something for our brain to produce certain. In some cases that might be true. It will depend on the exact cause for why you're, depressed, but you know, that has been proposed and has been tested actually, that certain probiotic uh, foods can have the same impact on your happiness as anti-depressants uh, do. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, um, and if you're talking about leaky gut, it's really interesting actually, because it can work in many different ways. So for example, when people get uh, Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease, actually 45 75% of people have leaky guts. And as it turns out, there is this other link as well where bacteria that are living in your gut can activate the, um, the um, um, immune system and as a result cause problems in your brain because the immune cells that are activated as a result of them 
causes the bacteria leaking out of your gut into your bloodstream, for example, they activate the immune system in your, in your brain, and that results in the deposition of molecules that ultimately promote Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease. So for example, mice that, uh, in which you remove uh, bacteria in the mouse's gut, uh, they have almost no Alzheimer-related pathology, even though you're trying to give them uh, that. So you, oh, you make wow. it, you so make they become resistant almost? Yeah, you make a special mouse that has been sensitized to get Alzheimer's disease, or some mouse version of it, you know, and then you remove uh, the bacteria in the gut of these mice, and suddenly the molecular pathology that causes the disease is almost gone. So it, this is not black and white, but there is a really important link between your gut and your brain, specifically uh, in the context of Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. I just want to mention that because it's so such an odd thing. That right? is, yeah, well, it's odd now because yeah. I think everybody's been telling you that it's all in your head. You know what I mean? Yes, exactly. Like, yeah. But I think I think in general, like the mind-body connection is sort of becoming. Yeah. And you got to think about too when you're eating things, right? You're not just feeding yourself, you're also feeding the bacteria living in your gut. And some of these bacteria are good, you know, and some of these bacteria are bad. And certain types of food, processed food, fast food and whatnot, feeds primarily the bad uh, bacteria. Whereas Mediterranean diets, for example, seem to feed primarily the good uh, bacteria. If you put something in your mouth, just realize that you're you're feeling two different things. You know, you're feeling yourself as well as these this unknown thing almost of the bacteria colonizing your gut, and you think might have nothing to do with you. They're separate organisms after mm -hmm. all. But wait a minute, uh, they actually um, are responsible uh, in many ways for a very basic processes that make us either happy or sad or sick or healthy. Right. Well, I want to bring something up because I read, okay, <laughs> why, you know what I'm going to say. I heard that in order to heal certain organs in your body, you should actually eat those organs from an animal. Mm. So for instance, if you have liver disease, you should actually be eating liver pills or liver, you know, a supplement that's made from liver or eating actual liver, cow liver. Mm -hmm. um, uh, if you have... Um, I don't know, like heart disease, heart problems, you should be eating heart okay. or taking heart, heart uh -huh. pill, like from, you know. So I don't know, what do you think about that? Because... Right. Um, well, I, listen, I, I haven't heard that before you told me about it. I understand the general thought, like something's wrong with your heart, so you need to Well, because heart you have the same, thought. yeah, it's the same cells, right? Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, yeah. if, if I have a bad heart, I want to regenerate my heart cells by, and in doing so, I eat other hearts. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I have, um, I, I have to look it up, obviously, if that's true or not. Maybe there's truth to it, I, I, don't, I don't know. But uh, I wouldn't recommend it in terms of brains, uh, depending on the type of brain, probably. Because um, one case where people are known to, for example, eat brains is in these cannibal countries, uh, cannibal, cannibal regions of the world where cannibals live still. Um, and there were, for example, there were cannibals in... Uh, uh, I think it was in Indonesia somewhere, some of these islands over there, uh, in New Guinea. Papua New Guinea, yeah. Yeah, uh, where uh, 
cannibals were eating the brains of their ancestors uh, in the hope that they would absorb their memories, something or their powers, or something like that. That didn't end up well uh, because um, they got all these neurological problems. So the opposite thing actually happened, you know. And it turns out that the reason for that was uh, was that the brains of old people uh, often or often can have really detrimental molecules in them. As our brains grow older, things go wrong, mm -hmm. and molecules are being generated that can be extremely toxic. Uh, and some of those molecules are infectious, actually. So normally when you think about an infection, it would be a bacterial infection, right? infected by a virus or bacterial fungus or something like that. It turns out that there are individual proteins uh, like a, a, a molecule that is in millions of the size of a virus that can be infectious also. And that will spread throughout your entire brain if you were to eat that brain that has that molecule in it. And then you die from horrible neurological disease. And what now turns out to be true is that that type of problem might also be the source for a lot of other neurogenitive diseases that we suffer from. Mm -hmm. like Alzheimer's disease, and Parkinson's disease, dementia, Huntington's disease. All these diseases are caused by proteins that aggregate in your body and cause these really big clumps. They cluster together into these big clumps. Um, and there are a couple of papers that have been coming out the last couple of years that show that these clumps are infectious particles. So if, you, if, you, if, I, if this were one of these brains, and I would take this was my grandma or something like that, and my grandma had a severe case of Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. I scoop some up and I sprinkle it on some of my cells, if I grow them in a dish or something like that, that in those cells, these infectious particles would get into my, into my cells, grow in a dish, and then they would force the aggregation of all the other proteins also. So uh, they somehow have this amazing quality by which they can infect other cells and then force other proteins uh, in that cell to behave like they do in this infectious toxic manner. Okay. And, and that seems to be the root cause of a lot of these diseases, Alzheimer's Parkinson's. So if you were to eat the brain of this person, and there might be, you know, this person might have suffered from one of these diseases, you could in fact be infecting yourself with. So how do you know, do you know if this brain has been infected? Well, I don't think it has been because this is clearly the brain of a very young person. Uh, and you are actually going to uh, do experiments on it or plant it in something, another something. You're going to, yeah. you're saying you have plans for this brain. You know, there's electricity, you know, and stuff that's going to happen, obviously. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, you know. I Wait, have you ever eaten a brain? I mean, have you ever thought to try it just to see? I mean, of course, I thought about it. I mean, uh, you know, sweet. Breads, Sweet breads, breads yeah. are like brains. Um, have you eaten those before? Uh, I, I, I have never eaten them, but if you know, if we want, we can eat a little part of this brain to see how it tastes. Uh, are you serious? You know, we gotta take a piece that is not gonna miss, like <laughs> too much. Oh my god! No, I am not eating. No. Um, you know, there wait. Might be how fresh is this brain? First of all, well, it just came out of this box. <laughs> It was frozen. But it's from, <laughs> from China. It might still be crunchy. You know, like a little popsicle. Okay, you know what? I I think you should try it first. I 
Did I bring anything? Did I bring a scalpel? Oh, yeah, I have a little. Yeah, it's a scalpel. Okay. <laughs> oh my god! So okay. Maybe you want to do. Like, what would you miss the least? I think I'll take a little bit of the cerebellum, the back of the brain. Oh my god. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god. Like, go. Eating brains, people! Oh my god! Oh my god, wait! It's a little chunky. Why am I taking so much? Oof. Okay. So, and this could be what taught this person how to play the piano or to play Chinese checkers. I can't um, believe you're eating somebody's brain right now. Um, you know. Thanks so much for listening to this episode with Dr. Mark Vermust. If you enjoyed it, be sure to leave a good review and follow us on all of our social medias at Rockin' Cushions. You can always go to our website, rockincushions.com, to find affordable slipcovers for all of your IKEA furniture. On the next episode, Michelle sits down with textile designer Rebecca Villavicencio.